Welcome back to the 228th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how Biden is using losing young black voters and an analysis around Detroit and parts of Michigan, how we can actually impact the inflation conversation and the debt conversation by following the advice of our founding fathers and what Trump's VP picks are looking like. And of course, we went today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, there's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So we've heard lots of different groups within the Democratic coalition starting to peel away. Uh, Biden is reportedly doing not so great with young voters, whether that be student debt, whether that be Gaza, Israel. He's not necessarily doing amazing with the uh, Muslim community in Minnesota and even in Michigan. And then we hear things about a lot of black men, uh, young black men going to the at least I was going to say going to the Republican side, but more like going away from Biden and considering RFK. Some of them are already in the bag for Trump. So my point being, is there a serious breakup of the coalition that has gotten Democrats in place over the last few elections after Barack Obama, or has it shifted enough where they've gotten enough of those college-educated voters, which is one of the key trends that uh, people, you know, Ezra Klein, you know, Ben Shapiro, Sager and Crystal, Kyle Kalinske, even Joe uh, Rogan, and other, lot, other lots of commentators, even Fox News and CNN, have at least pointed out every once in a while that the, the demographics have shifted a little bit, so has it shifted enough? Are they going to be able to hold on to this new coalition, or do they still need those parts to that were part of the old coalition to really come through in full force like they used to? And if they do need that, then this first article may not be the best news for them. So the first one comes from Rolling Stone with the headline reading, Young Black in Done with Biden, The Issues That Could Decide the Election. And the, one of the key takeaways from this article, because it is a very long article, so I'm not going to be able to get to every single thing, but I do want to talk about some of the key takeaways before we get into quotes from the individuals that the author spoke to, uh, some of the more uh, specific uh, Detroit-level stuff that the author talks about, which is a lot of these people want the presidential candidates, or not even just the presidential candidates, they even there are local politicians, their statewide politicians, or the ones representing their state on a national level, the senators, the, the congressmen, they want FaceTime with them. They don't just want to see them in person and on the stage. They want to be able to talk to them. And even beyond that, they want them there in the community having some sort of exchange of ideas or helping in a certain way. Some people have a very specific way that they want them to help, and others just want to see them there helping out in any way they can. And this is the beauty. This is what we are lacking nowadays with social media. You can really get away, not, not always, in certain communities, not so much, but you can kind of get away with being a, a distant candidate. You can say, hey, I am running for blah, 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 and hold all of your uh, speeches, all of your different rallies in a few of the larger cities, 
and then you can record them, put them out on social media. You can do targeted advertising. You can do lots of robocalls, targeted ads on Instagram, or just a whole bunch of Instagram posts and talk to everybody within the district, or at least speak to them. And what I mean by that is not actually going and having a conversation with them, but speak to one or two issues that they care about through those social media posts. But we're losing with that. There's the trade-off that we don't see those people face to face. We don't go and sit down and have those conversations and hear their side of the argument. It's one thing to scroll through the Instagram comments and say, oh, okay, that person really likes that issue, that person really likes that issue, versus going and hearing people's stories. They don't have a character lock on them where you can see the emotion in their face. You can actually have a back and forth in real time rather than having time on social media to have your media team say, okay, well, this is the proper position to take. Here are the hedge words that you need to use. And it's not always this well coordinated, but the point is these are mechanisms that are more easily facilitated through social media and through these sort of campaigns versus retail politics where you, if you disagree with somebody on the ground, you got to be lightning quick and find a way to bring it back together to have a conversation. Uh, You have to find a way to kind of moderate yourself and say, hey, I don't agree with you, but I want to hear your voice. Come out and have another conversation about this. Keep informing me about these issues. Versus online, if there's a hater, you can say, okay, hey, we're not going to target this person anymore. Uh, he's a part of this certain demographic. This part, of, He's part of this church. Maybe we shouldn't send ads to that local parish, things like that. And I know that seems really weird because you probably doubt that politicians or anyone running for any sort of office nowadays is doing this, but no, they're doing hyper-localized ads. They're doing geofencing. They could literally block off a southern part of a town or a northern part of a town or a certain community from getting their ads, and then they don't have to spend those extra 25 cents per acre because they're like, oh, well, hey, we don't think it will really resonate here. Uh, We have some idea of what this church normally, the people that are in it that they normally vote one way or the other, this particular community, this subgroup of a town, uh, we shouldn't necessarily, or we don't have to reach out to them as much. We want to make sure our ad dollars are effective. So we want to go for the moderate people and we want to go for the people that are already on our side who just don't know who my name is yet versus having to actually be confronted by people that are on completely opposite sides of the spectrum and really disagree. And you may be saying, well, actually a rally or a a town hall, these are all normal filtering mechanisms because people that really don't agree with you probably aren't going to come. That's true. You're probably going to have 90% people that are interested and 10% that are not. But that 10%, it's a lot easier to block and ignore on social media because there's a whole bunch of other hate coming from all over the place versus in person when I said earlier, what I said earlier is you can see their eyes. You can feel the emotion. You actually have to be a human being rather than looking online and looking at people as data points. So I think that is one of the big points that I really wanted to take away from this article because it's something that we've heard mentioned about politics in general nowadays, but a lot of these different people from a whole bunch of different communities within Detroit are saying, we feel like you're not talking to us. We feel like you don't, you're not doing anything about the issues we care about. And even if you're not, we still want you here in person so we can talk to you about what we think is important. So This is a quote from one of the local uh, residents that the author spoke to. He's a rapper. 
And uh, he was talking about Joe Biden's record. Quote, you want to know what the conversation was about? He's talking about a conversation that his and his friends, him and his friends were having uh, when Biden versus Trump came up. He asked the 1994 crime bill. You know who drafted that? Biden, I answered. That is the author responding. Quote, exactly. We pay attention to that. There was a mass incarceration of black Americans. And we see things like that and our dissatisfaction with Biden is not about that. We got money from Trump. A lot of people think we completely support Donald Trump, he says. We just believe in holding everybody accountable. It's not fair to us to be told to believe that only one guy is making mistakes and only one guy is making smart decisions. They both got flaws. And that 100% is true. And the thing about it is, if you see that person that's being elected you see that politician if they are there on the ground with you and you see them make a flub and they make a joke and you can see them actually run the room and be endearing then you can see them as a human being along with their flaws but if you see them as a top of the tier politician who's only mentioned on tv and in ads and then you hear about their flaws it's a lot harder to humanize them so that ability or that need to go and talk to people on the ground is even more present especially nowadays when you're going to get attacked and attacked and attacked and all your flaws are going to be concentrated on by every single person that doesn't want you in that office Now, here's the author giving a little bit of a breakdown of the previous few elections and why Michigan may be important. Quote, in 2016, Trump won Michigan by nearly 11,000 votes over Hillary Clinton. In 2020, Biden won Michigan 50.6% to 47.8%, though in Detroit, he received fewer individual votes than Clinton four years prior. While 2020 exit polls tabulated that 90% of black people in Michigan had voted for Biden, his current approval number with black people is at just 62%, according to a July epic MRA poll. And it goes on to describe a few other parts of the Biden problem. But here's the part about Trump. Trump is poised to receive more black votes than any Republican candidate ever, 14 to 30 percent, as opposed to 8 percent in 2020. And this is what I was talking about with our daily debate, which is, is Trump going to be able to be in the position to pull away enough of these Biden voters or even just Democratic voters, the people that have traditionally been part of this Democratic coalition. And I I say traditionally. Um, It goes back into the 90s, a little bit of 80s, but this has really been cemented. It was really locked in during 2008 and once again in 2012, and it's faltered. It's kind of shifted still a little bit more, especially with blue-collar voters. But the minority theory, the one that is put forward, the growing... um, majority-minority population put forward by Roy Teixeira, um, that has been a theory and a posited position since 2003. So this has been pretty long-standing that the Democrats rely on some of these minority groups in order to get to the end line. And things have started to shift. And that's probably because Trump speaks to the average everyday man. So it doesn't matter what your race is, what your uh, sexes or what your economic status is, or at least within the bottom tiers. Cause if you're in the higher tier, you're probably, 
uh, person who really wants tax cuts. So that's maybe why you care for Trump. But when it comes to convincing the everyday person or just the average Joe, he, he talks like an average person. He talks like an average guy from New York, or at least that's the talking point. And that's why a lot of people say, hey, he resonates with people across the entire spectrum. I don't know if that's necessarily it. I genuinely believe it could be that a lot of people woke up during the pandemic or they woke up after all the terrible Trump coverage or when Biden got in, they had a revelation. I think there could be a million different things. And just like when Trump came in, some Democrats or Democratic-leaning people had a revelation like, oh my God, we could get somebody like this. We could get somebody as rude as this in the presidency. And it, it activated them as well. So I think there are lots of different things that could have led up to this point. But it is not a fun point for the Democrats when they're looking down their prospects for 2024 and they're saying, oh my goodness, Trump could get even on the low end, on the low end, 14% versus his previous 8%. And then on the high end, 30? Come on now. And what about the people that are voting for RFK? They may split 50-50 for Trump. So if they're, you know, if they already have those numbers put into the percentages that I mentioned before, then that's not going to change much. But maybe that adds a 1% or 2% to Trump's numbers. That, that's devastating for the current Democrat model. And maybe it will last. Maybe it's just a Trump effect. Who knows? But what a lot of these people are saying is it isn't just Trump. A lot of the people that this author talked to, some of them absolutely hate Trump. Some of them don't mind Trump. Some of them want RFK Jr. But it's not just the fact that it's Trump. It's the fact that they're saying, hey, we're going to hold you accountable, Joe Biden, but not just you, the party as well. We're going to hold both parties accountable. And the thing is, one party has definitely had the language that we're fighting for you more than the other. Uh, the Democrats have definitely said we're specifically fighting for more equity within the United States, ensuring that equality is put at the forefront of their administrations, at the forefront of their campaigns, which is a talking point that they've had for quite some time. And now people are starting to realize, OK, actually, maybe they have made some serious strides. I mean, Civil Rights Act was signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, that is a Democratic president. So there were strides. And while the Democrats were delivering on this messaging, then yeah, people in that group were going to say, yeah, okay, hey, they say they're going to do it, they follow through. But now they're starting to see, okay, it's first off, it's just harder to follow through on equity and equality practices because we're pretty darn equal. I mean, we are equal underneath the law. And the outcomes are vastly different, but most opportunities are open to everybody. And I understand there are some separate limitations, especially in larger cities where resources are spread thin. But my point being, overall, in the form of legal protections, equality is in place. And equality socially is pretty much on the level. I'll, I'll be honest, if you're an out-and-out -out racist nowadays, you're going to get lots of hate, or you're just going to get completely thrown off into the random side of the baseball field where nobody's ever going to pitch to you, never, no one's ever going to throw to you, they just don't want to see you. So to pretend as though there's actually a lot of strides that need to be done on this front, enough that they can make, the Democratic Party could make substantial changes and show the 
people that they convinced, that they told were fighting for your equity and equality in the United States, they're not going to be able to show enough results. So these people are starting to hold them accountable and say, either you're not doing what you said you could do, or what you said you could do actually isn't a problem, or what you said was a problem that needed solving can't actually be solved because it's not as big of a problem. So maybe we need to reevaluate. I think that's a serious conversation. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is not looking good for Mr. Biden. It is not going to be a situation that is going to end well for him, especially when you have people in a major city saying, hey, we really need to think about this more critically when it comes to Joe Biden versus Trump. And the funny thing I said the other day, it's kind of stupid to me that we're doing the same thing, you know, the 2020 election basically over again, except with the out the president who's not currently in office is inversed. You know, Trump's not in office where Biden wasn't in office in 2020. But my point being, now I think it's actually kind of funny because it gives us a chance to, one, truly examine the shift within each group as this next election comes up because it's the same people. So in theory, even though things have changed, don't get me wrong, but in theory, it should be a relatively close mix with the edge cases that aren't just loyal to one side or the other and the people who actually care about issues and are moved one way or another. They're going to give us a lot of relevant data about the shifts within the demographics of each party and the issues that people care about. So it's going to be an interesting one for sure. So we're going to leave that one aside and we're going to jump to our second article that comes from the American conservative and the headline reads to solve inflation, heed the founding father's advice. So as much as some people don't like to admit it, our founding fathers really did have something special going when they started this nation and they were, they were very wise men. And for anybody who's a observer of history, you'll know that we had a good chunk of debt before we were to become a full-fledged nation after the war. And the wisest advice that we could have gotten was from some of our founders basically saying, hey, guess what? You got to pay it off. And now we're in another situation where we're running a, a really large deficit. We're constantly printing money. We're doing different subsidy programs. We're doing different uh, welfare programs. We're sending money overseas. I, I actually did a, a conversation with a whole bunch of people the other day, and a lot of them have a lot of different ideas, but there was a large percentage of them that kept saying, hey, let's not send money overseas. That's one of the first things we should cut. So there's lots of different ways to get there, but we definitely need to cut our spending so that we can actually run a surplus so then we can start paying off our debt. But uh, that's not the end of the conversation. This article starts off with something trying to highlight where we're at. Quote, earlier this month, the Congressional Budget Office reported that at our current rate of spending, annual interest payments on debt are expected to exceed the cost of our nation's entire defense budget in 2024. The CBO also predicts that the annual deficit will reach $2.6 trillion by 2034. So that's annual. That in right now, and it's changed a little bit because it goes up by 1.4 billion a day, you know, a million a minute. It's floating somewhere around 34.27 trillion. As of the day of recording this, it, it could have gone up a little bit since then, no doubt. So that's 
that's saying an extra two point six trillion a year, and that's not including a, a president who may be like Trump, who's okay with just spending out the wazoo, or an Obama or a Biden who's willing to spend out the wazoo. It could go even higher than that, and the national debt will exceed fifty trillion by that same time. This comes six months after one of the major credit rating agencies, Fitch Ratings, downgraded our nation's debt for only the second time in history. Here are some frightening facts about American financial health. And um, I'm going to just read through them very quickly. Uh, You know that million a minute number that I gave you? Guess what that comes down to a second? It's about 186.263 per second. And then uh, I don't want to read all of them because they're they're long, but the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio, so the amount of debt we have versus the amount of GDP that we have per year uh, ratio is one of the highest in all the developing countries falling short of Japan after their financial crisis of the, I believe it was the 80s going into the 90s. And they're sitting at around uh, 254%. Greece is 193%, which... Greece had to be bailed out by the EU not that long ago, so is it really um, is it really a good thing that we're getting closer to that in Italy that has 148%? I can't think of a, a good reason that Italy has that besides that they have some social programs that are paying for an older population. Uh, besides that, I can't really think of a good reason. I don't remember a huge financial crisis, anything dwarfing any of the other ones like Greece or Japan. The University of Pennsylvania's Warden Business School's budget model predicts that the debt-to-GDP sh- GDP ratio will be over 225% by 2050. Now, that is looking a long time out because, what, we're only in 2024, so that's another 26 years. What? We don't have to worry about that for another 26 years. Well, guess what? We're going to slowly get towards it. We're just going to keep on going with that same mentality. Oh, we don't have to worry about it until then. And the thing is, the projections will just keep getting further out because, you know, 2050 won't feel that long from now. And also 225, I mean, what, if we sit at one, I think we're sitting around 160, 170 now. So, you know, 160 slash 170, let's just say 160 for the sake of argument, to 225, that is about a 65% uh, increase. Like that, that seems like a lot, but as we get closer to 2050, we'll probably be somewhere around like 200. So 200 to 25%, 200% to 20, 225% doesn't feel like that much of an increase. So we're going to start projecting out to 2070 and we're going to say the same thing. Oh, that's way off. We don't have to worry about that. And it's just an endless cycle where we're not going to actually ever address any of what's going on here. So there's some comments from the more recent establishment and then there's some commentary about the founders of our nation quote while pelosi schumer and biden's nonstop money printing has been predicted has been having the predictable inflationary effects house republicans have missed a huge opportunity to push discretionary spending back down to pre-pandemic levels which would save us 380 billion annually Okay, yeah, hey, 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 that's that's fair. Get rid of some discretionary spending. That's not going to completely take the issue on. Over 60%, and that's with a few different additives, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, a few other programs that are adjacent to it, at 60% of the budget, okay, that that's, that is more than half, okay? Okay, I'm going to get my Donald Trump on We need to be serious about this issue. Discretionary spending is not all that we can focus on. Sure, 
It's the first thing that we can target, but there is a larger target sitting behind it, and we need to take it on. I, I, people have been saying, people have been saying it's getting out of control for a long time, but no, we need to take it on right now. I don't know why I went into Donald Trump, because he's definitely not for going after Social Security in Medicare, uh, Medicaid and Medicare. So that's something we need. We need to have this conversation. And what I noticed with a lot of people yesterday when I was having a conversation with them on on campus, what they were saying was, uh, we need to cut this, this and this. I'm like, OK, that's only this percent, this percent. None of them tackled Social Security. Some people did. Some people were like, we need to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. I was like, great, that's 60 percent. What about these other things that we probably need to take on? each year. And they're like, okay, yeah, probably not those. So there's always a line where people are going to say, Hey, we don't need to, we shouldn't be spending this anymore, which is great. But there are other issues that they don't want to take on that we're going to have to. And there were also a lot of responses for the people who had no idea. They're like, wow, I didn't realize we were that much in debt. And I said, yeah. And guess what? You, me, everybody here on this campus is going to have to take on that burden someday. And one guy said to me, well, it's, it's probably just going to all be relieved one day. Like we, we have so much debt from other, uh, so many other countries debts and they have so many of ours that we're just going to offset them. And I said, first off, no, they're leverage points. So they're not just going to offset them, but he was making an idea that, oh, it's all fake money anyway. So it can kind of just be blown off. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but that's living in an idealistic world where everything just gets reset I don't think we should live that way because then the incentive in the future is, okay, we can just run up a whole bunch of debt and then it will just all be forgiven. That's not how an economy should be run on principle alone. Like in practicality, sure, if that's what we end up doing and it doesn't actually destroy people's lives, which we've seen the inflationary spiral that's hurting a lot of people here in America, sure, I, I guess you can make a practical argument for it. I wouldn't necessarily agree. But on a principled argument, you can't live that way. If you want to instill responsibility in your citizenry, you also have to have a responsible government, a legislator, executive that keeps its checkbook balanced. So you're not saying to the rest of the people, Hey, we can just take out money in order to supplement all of your debts as well to pay off, you know, student loans to just continually give you money in order to support you because we understand that times are, are tough right now. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have empathy, but if the idea keeps being, okay, hey, we can just write fictitious checks and then eventually clear it off the balance sheet, that is not an incentive to being responsible and locking down spending so that the government doesn't continue to get bigger. Because guess what? As spending gets bigger, just like a corporation, people complain that corporations have to always pursue more profits. And I agree. I think it's an interesting mechanism where they can't ever be satisfied with what they have now, especially with inflation. It's naturally going to go up anyway. But the point being that they always have to come up with a new product, a new brand, and make a new acquisition, sell something off that's not profitable. They always have to bring in more money in order to be seen as viable. Well, that's what happens with government spending. You spend more money on certain programs, and then in order you get a certain amount of results, you want more results along those lines, so you need more money. We increase the size of a program, so we add more people on staff who address certain issues. We realize there are more issues that we need to take on within that field, so we add more staff. We add more responsibilities to staff. We start paying them more. You can see how this just continues on and on and on because if the government's idea is that we have to try to solve as many people's problems as possible and the, the, whether or not that's a legitimate goal of government, I'm not saying it's not, but 
if you have the stipulation that we have to do it within budget, then we can't just keep expanding. We have to go with the most effective thing for each dollar versus if your perspective is the exact same thing, then we need to solve as many people's problems as possible. But we also have an unlimited budget. We're just going to continue to keep growing and we're going to have ineffective programs or not as efficient programs as we should have in order to tackle things. We're going to be paying uh, a dollar for per service, per person serviced versus 50%, 50 cents per person serviced if we were to have a budget restraint that incentivized people to have the most efficient process, the most cost-effective process that got the same, if not better, outcomes. So I think that's a, a philosophical battle that needs to be had for sure, and I, I will be willing to have a different practical argument about it or conversation about it with somebody. But we need to be like our founders. We need to acknowledge that, hey, um, in order to be a feasible place where people want to park their money, we also have to have sound monetary policy. We have to have a sound and stable U.S. dollar. And as long as people keep pumping money into our economy from the outside or even putting money in our bonds, in our treasury notes in order to be seen as a safe currency, that will continue. But it just takes a little bit of extra shakiness. And then people start diversifying. You know, BRICS comes along and people say that could be a viable option. And then as people pull their money out in order to put it other places, that makes it look even more shaky and confidence continues to go down. Just like the market, sometimes downwards trends are not just, oh, the value of this company is going down. It's also people getting extremely scared that they saw a large drop in the value after a reporting call, and they're like, oh, okay, hey, let me get out while the getting is good. So uh, that's the nature of social sciences and the economy as well. So let's jump into a very, very quick article coming from Fox News. Trump reveals VP shortlist includes DeSantis, Scott, Ramaswamy, Noam, Donalds, and Gabbard. And I only want to talk about three of them, and I'm going to let you go and read the entire article. It's actually a very short one, but I think Scott's actually on there. I think DeSantis is not, no offense to DeSantis, but him and Trump don't get along pretty famously. Um, I think Noam is on there because she's a woman. Scott's on there because he brings in the black vote. And uh, Gabbard is on there because maybe she can appeal to some Democrats. I don't really think Gabbard's going to be the vice president. She also appeals to women, but... Not necessarily. I, I would honestly, I didn't mind Tulsi. Didn't like all of her policies, no doubt about that. But I didn't mind some of her commentary. I, I listened to her podcast there for a while, and some of the boring, the interviews were boring, but some of them were quite interesting. So I wouldn't mind a Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who's a, a hard hitter as a vice president, going out there and being effective. I don't hear much from Noam nowadays, and I think Scott. His positivity could be needed within the the Trump presidency. So I think all three of those are pretty good and likely. Uh, Ramaswamy, I I think he wants to be a part of the administration. Uh, whether he says he wants to be the top dog or not, whether he says, oh, I don't work well as a second man, I think he may want to be there as an advisor on certain policies or maybe even uh, a cabinet position, but I, I don't know for sure. Donald's, uh, nobody's ever heard of Donald's, and to be honest with you, before reading this article and doing a little bit of extra research, I had no idea. So Donald's is out. And like I said, DeSantis is not really a viable one. So we'll see how this VP list develops. But he also said that Nikki Haley is definitely not on that list, which I thought was uh, pretty funny from him. But the, the point being, the VP slots are wide open and he wants as many people begging him as possible for this. So we'll see how that one pans out as we go into South Carolina on Saturday. Maybe we come out of it with a vice presidential candidate? Probably not, because Trump wants to draw it out as long as possible. So we'll jump to our final article that comes from, it's our daily delight, 
that comes from Stinger's Hub, and the headline reads, Cat's Comical Reaction to Sock in Shangdang, China. Shandong, China. Sorry if I mispronounced it. And it was this cat's reaction. He's going through, he's like, oh, what's this? Oh, it smells like, oh no, that smells like absolute trash. Uh, uh, uh. And the part of the body of the article here says this footage was filmed and produced in 20 the 25th of march 2023 note that there's no sound shandong and in shandong an amusing video captured the reaction of a rather disheveled looking cat and he does look pretty grumpy and if you want to see his full reaction you want to read the rest of the description you can find this article this video along with all the other articles from today in the description below the like and subscribe button also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And with all that said, there is only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.